Good evening. It is a joy to be back with you tonight. I <clears throat> enjoyed my time with you this morning, and uh, it's not often that I get to uh, guest preach twice in one day at the same church. So this is nice to look out and see all your faces again. Uh, our text this evening is going to be Deuteronomy 34, 1 through 12. Um, you, you might notice that for the second time today I've picked the last passage in a book. I didn't do that on purpose. Uh, the only thing I thought about when I sent in these sermon texts was, well, I guess if, you know, it'd be nice if I did one Old Testament, one New Testament. It did not occur to me until literally I was getting in my car to come here, and I was like, oh, I picked the last passage in two to- very different books. But we did, and that's where we are, uh, and I'm just trusting uh, God's sovereignty in that. Deuteronomy 34, 1 through 12. Um, <clears throat> a few of you in here know me, and you've heard me preach before this morning. Um, And so if you have heard this story, and I'm looking very specifically at Sarah Beth, please pretend like you haven't. That would mean a lot to me both personally and professionally. Um, uh, So uh, I work uh, with youth at DPC. It's not the only thing I do, but it's one of the things I do. And and so I've been to a lot of graduations in the six years that I've been there. What some people, even at, uh, even some of our members at Decatur Press don't know, is that before I came into the PCA in 2017, uh, I was in ministry as a Baptist. I was actually ordained. Um, and when God called me into the PCA, uh, you know, I had to take a step back and did all the internship, license, or ordination for our denomination. So I understand why people aren't always aware that I had been doing ministry for several years before that. But I've been uh, working in some kind of ministry, often in youth ministry, in some capacity, part-time, at least since uh, since late 2008, early 2009, really, really since college. Um, and I say that just so you know that when I tell you I've attended a lot of high school graduations, you will know, I mean, I've attended like a lot of high school graduations. And I'm always happy to go. Truly, I am. Uh, they are an exciting and emotional time in the lives of those students. And I love those students, so it's an exciting and emotional time for me. However, if you've been to enough high school graduations, you'll understand what I'm about to say. Um, you eventually find that most graduation speeches are more or less identical. Uh, apart from the ones that I've heard my students give, uh, they basically all run together in my head. I don't really remember them, except for one. There's one that I remember vividly. My wife and I still talk about it. When I attended my younger cousin's high school graduation, um, about five years ago now, I think, her class president gave his speech. And if I'm being honest, it's the class president's speech that's usually the least impressive. No offense to them. It's just that they're up against the two smartest kids in their class and whoever the school paid to come speak. Um, But to my surprise, this class president's speech was deeply moving. It brought me, as well as the majority of his graduating class, to tears. It brought a bunch of 17- and 18-year-old boys to tears in front of each other. That is a difficult thing to do. And he did it by, by focusing on a, a very unique and, and important relationship in his life. In his speech, instead of simply making some offhand comment about how, you know, we couldn't have gotten here without our parents, which would have been true, and that's what you usually hear, he stopped for a moment, and he, and he spoke specifically about, and even to, his dad. Uh, he, he talked about how his dad had stayed up uh, to do work that he'd had to bring home after his kids went to bed so that he could be with them the whole time 
that, that they were awake. They could be together. He talked about how his dad always made sure to spend time with them on the weekends. He talked about how every day since the first day of kindergarten, his dad had made his lunch. That was where he got choked up. Subsequently, that's where the rest of us got choked up. And you could look directly at his line of sight and see him making eye contact with his dad the whole time. The rest of us might not. We might as well have not been there. He was just looking at his dad and remembering all these things his dad had done for him. And, of course, his dad is nearly weeping, which just made it harder for the rest of us. But you could see just in how they looked at each other during the speech how much that kid's dad loved him and just how well that kid knew it. But the things he was commenting on, and this is what stuck out to me, the things he was commenting on were not remarkable in and of themselves. Uh, dinner together, weekend trips, full lunch boxes. For the most part, that's just sort of what parents do. It doesn't really seem like the kind of thing that makes a hero, but the reason it mattered so much was because that dad had been faithful. He'd been doing it for years. He'd been absolutely steadfast. That's really what that kid was commenting on. And the older I get, the more I value that kind of faithfulness, the more I aspire to it myself, uh, and, and the more I find myself considering it, Uh, meditating on it when I think about the attributes of God. The trouble is that for many of us, we don't really feel all the time like God is being faithful. I know that feel can be a scary word for Presbyterians, but it's true. We know the right answer is that God is faithful, uh, that he he is steadfast. But for every person in this room, I can pretty much guarantee that at some time or another, you have quietly wondered exactly how God plans to be faithful in whatever it is you're experiencing. Maybe you've even questioned, you wouldn't say it out loud, but maybe you've questioned if he intends to be faithful to you at all. And those are the concerns, those are the thoughts, the questions that I want us to wrestle with as we dive into our text this evening. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. And this is Deuteronomy 34, 1 through 12. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Please pray with me. Almighty God, as we open your word together this evening, we ask that you would give each of us ears to hear your truth. We pray 
that by the working of the Holy Spirit, you would cause the proclamation of your word to bear fruit in us according to your wise and gracious purpose in our lives. May we see clearly the ways we fail to trust and love you and even more clearly the forgiveness and hope that you give in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we uh, really dive in, I want to take a minute and kind of look at the context of this. As I mentioned, we're, we're at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. But that isn't the only end that's happening here. This is the end of Israel's wilderness wanderings. Right? They've spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. This is the end of that. It's the end of Moses' life. Even more broadly, it's the end of what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, they sort of work together as a unit. They together were given to the people of Israel as they entered the land to remind them of who they were, where they'd come from, and what God had done for them. Uh, these books are, are attributed to Moses uh, up until this point where it's most likely that Joshua, Moses' successor, recorded the events of his death. It is hard for someone who has died to write. Um, but Moses had written everything up until this point for the people of Israel. Now, all of that means we have a lot of important history that has led to this moment. But there are a few highlights that uniquely play into this final chapter of Deuteronomy. Obviously, by this point, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they've all lived and died waiting on the promise that God would one day give a land to their ancestors. Or, excuse me, to, uh, to, to, their, uh, to, to their offspring. Uh, Jacob's sons, after whom the tribes of Israel will be named, uh, also passed a long time ago, including Joseph, uh, who saved his people from famine. He gave them a safe place to live in the land of Egypt. And Joseph's actually buried in Egypt, but his bones will be moved from the promised land when the Israelites leave Egypt. His bones will get moved into the promised land. That is important. Hold on to that. We'll come back to that later. And we fast forward to the days of Moses when the Hebrew people are enslaved because new Egyptian rulers had risen up who had no regard for their forefather Joseph. And we get to the very famous story of the Exodus God used Moses to deliver people, the people of Israel, from slavery. They cross the Red Sea. They begin making their way to the land. God promised them. Unfortunately, when they get there and they send spies to check it out, uh, they ultimately refuse to go in because they're scared of the inhabitants. Only two spies, Joshua, who will come up again, and Caleb, say they should trust God and enter the land anyway. The people ignore them because of their faithlessness. God uh, has the people wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation except for Joshua and Caleb, die off. And originally, that curse did not extend to Moses. Until, as we read earlier, Moses also acts faithlessly. After disobeying God, Moses is told that after all that time, he would not be allowed to lead his people into the promised land. However, in the laws that God gives Israel regarding the office of prophet in general... This is, this is why we read two passages. These are both important. He also makes a promise that a prophet like Moses would rise up and that they should follow him. And with all of that story backing, um, backing this passage, it's really these two promises that, that, that Moses will not lead his people into the land and that another prophet would take his place. It's really those two promises that this text deals with um, these promises and the questions that accompany them are what De Deuteronomy 34 uh, really hang on. 
And so what we're going to do is we're just going to look at this passage in two parts. We're going to look at the death of Moses in verses 1 through 8. And then we're going to look at the rise of Joshua in verses 9 through 12. So again, if you would, please read with me uh, in verses 1 through 8. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of uh, palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have set you, excuse me, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Now at this point, Moses has delivered his final words to the congregation of Israel, and as he has done so often before, he climbs a mountain alone. Only this time he knows he won't be coming back down. And at the surface level, what happens here is pretty simple. It's exactly what we expect to happen. Moses dies, he doesn't lead his people into the land. This is the temporal consequence for his sin. This is the consequence for his sin sort of within history, right? This is what he'd earned for himself. However, if we look carefully, we notice that's not all that's going on. The details actually give a more moving story than that. First, you'll notice that while he does not get to lead his people into the land, he does get to see the land. God shows it to him which God was under no obligation to do. Um, Moses has met with God on mountains before, and he meets them on one again, but there's this deeply personal element here. Often when Moses meets with God, it's as this go-between for, for, for Israel. Here, Moses is meeting with God, and it really is just Moses and God. It almost reads as if God is assuring him that what his forefathers longed for, what he had labored for all those years was coming to pass. He would not get to lead his people into this land, but he would get to die with the assurance that they were going. He got to see it. All these generations later, it was finally coming to pass. His work was not in vain. And we also get a glimpse into the ways that God had preserved him up until this point. We're told that even at 120 His eye was undimmed and his vigor was unabated. God had been faithful to give him the strength he needed to carry out the tasks that were before him. And God never let that strength fail. Moses had what he needed until the day he died, including love of his people who were told uh, mourn for a full month after his death. Now, admittedly, they did not always do a great job of showing that love to Moses. But here it's clear that they, they did truly love him. But there's still one more interesting detail in these verses regarding the death of Moses and the promise that he wouldn't lead his people in the land. The text tells us that God himself buries Moses there. But it also tells us that no one knows where, and there are three kind of important things about that. And the first is really just a note about this event's literary significance. Um, You might hear me say the words literary significance and want to check out, hang in there, 
This is important, uh, and I think it's cool, personally. Um, as I mentioned before, this is the end of the Pentateuch, right? The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The beginning of those books is creation, which is concluded by God drawing the first man from the dust. That's how humanity begins. God draws man from the dust. It's a profoundly intimate thing compared to how everything else had been created up to that point. God speaks everything else into existence. He gets to humanity, and he, and he shapes him from the dust. And we get sort of a parallel here. Just as God had drawn Adam from the dust, he personally commits Moses back to it. From dust man came, and to dust we return. Sort of underneath this passage is the reminder that the penalty of sin that was placed on Adam and on all his offspring is still hanging over our heads. We've reached the end of this huge section of Scripture, and, and our biggest problem, sin and death, is still hanging there. We still have no answer for it. But even in death, this penalty for sin, God is very tender toward Moses. He buries him personally. And really, that's a reflection of the, of the broader story that's happening in Moses' life. Death was the penalty for sin, and God is tender toward Moses in that. Moses can't enter the land, but God is tender to let him see it. Secondarily, it seems that this helps prevent the people from creating a false place of worship. Um, we see later in the text that they know of no one who did the things Moses did. So it isn't too much of a stretch to see how the temptation to let honor accidentally become worship could crop up. I mean, we find ourselves tempted to hero worship for much less, right? And, and we see in their own history that the Israelites are no strangers to idolatry. It wouldn't be hard to imagine that if they knew the place of Moses' burial, um, they, could, they could turn him into something he was never meant to be. Him being buried in a place that no one knew prevented him from becoming something he shouldn't have been to them. But most importantly, it also means that no one could take his body into the land. No one could go get his bones and bring them into the promised land. God burying Moses kind of cuts two ways. It is deeply tender, but it also ensures that he will never receive the same blessing as his forefather, Joseph. Remember I mentioned that Joseph, who was buried in Egypt, he, his bones were carried into the promised land. Moses could not receive the same honor because no one knew where he was buried. The final resting place of Moses' body would remain outside of Canaan. God made a promise. You don't get to lead your people in. And he was going to keep it. God was exceedingly kind to Moses, even in this moment, but he kept that promise. Because of his sin, Moses could not lead his people into the promised land. But our passage deals with a second promise also. If you remember, uh, we, we mentioned two promises, so let's look together at the rise of Joshua in verses 9 through 12. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. It's apparent here, and has been elsewhere before now, that Joshua was always going to be Moses' successor. 
that's been pretty clear within the history of of within the story of uh, of these people for a while now. Joshua was going to follow Moses, right? He'd been training for this for for literally decades at this point. And since he and Caleb were the only two faithful spies leading the rest of that generation who died in the wilderness, um, he was most likely the oldest person left among the people. He was the guy that everyone's eyes would be on. And as we expect, the people listened to him. He, like Moses before him, was loved by his people, even if also like Moses, they didn't always show it especially well. I mean, it really seems like He's the slam-dunk candidate for the prophet like Moses that God had promised. God said a prophet like Moses would arise from the people of Israel. And you know what? Joshua really seems like he's going to be that guy. But we have a problem. And it's not a problem that we have to dig around for. It's not a problem that's hard to see. It's a problem that's presented directly in the passage. The text explicitly tells us that he was not. Because at the time Deuteronomy was completed and circulated after Moses' death, as the people are entering the land, we are told that no one, no one had arisen like Moses. It wasn't that Joshua wasn't going to lead the people he was, but he wasn't what they were looking for in this second Moses. There was no one that God spoke to face to face. There was no one through whom God executed judgment on false gods like he had through Moses. There was no one who stood up to the powers of this world and delivered their people the way Moses did. He is still, in our own popular imagination, the prototypical deliverer. People often use Exodus references when describing deliverance from injustice or even just from unpleasant circumstances. It even finds its way into our movies. This is going to be maybe a silly illustration, but it stuck out when I was first writing this sermon. The most recent Planet of the Apes trilogy from 2011 to 2017, by the end of that trilogy, it was, again, not subtext, it was on the surface apparent that it was an Exodus narrative. The main character was modeled after Moses. It was, they didn't hide it, it wasn't like you had to, it was just right there. It was a parallel to Moses' life. All right, Moses is this, in our, in our imagination, is the prototypical deliverer. Imagine what he would have meant to them. And so what do we get here? By the time of its circulation, there is no one who compares to Moses. And in fact, the rest of the Old Testament will bear witness to this over and over and over again. Moses is constantly someone people looked back to, but who never seemed to have an equal in regard to the particular kind of work that he did. So it seems, at the end of Deuteronomy, that God has actually only kept one of his promises. And it was the promise to discipline Moses for his sin. It was the promise we kind of wish he wouldn't have kept. Moses doesn't get to enter the land because of his failure, but no prophet arises who is like him. Now, if you're taking notes, just so you know, we're going to start transitioning away from that second point, the rise of Joshua, and start moving toward bringing all this together into sort of a conclusion and application. So label that however you want in your notes. I don't have a snappy heading. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Do you remember the kid from my illustration in the introduction um, who made an auditorium full of people weep talking about his dad's very ordinary faithfulness? The only reason that was so moving, in fact, the only reason that kid even recognized it was because he was at the end of that story. He was going to be moving off. 
Um, he's going to be going to college. Uh, there's going to be no more sandwiches, uh, no more coming home to dad every day, no more spending every weekend with him. That part of his story was done. And it was only in retrospect that all of his dad's faithfulness began to come into focus. And do you think if you travel back in time to, let's say, when that kid was in third grade, and you asked him if he was, you know, grateful that his dad had packed his lunch and then rushed him off to the bus so he wouldn't be late, that he just would have broken into thankful tears? Probably not. I mean, he might have been thankful. Yeah, I'm glad I had a lunch. But then he would have gone on about his day. It was only at the end of that story that he realized just how much all that meant and just exactly what his dad actually did for him. He needed to see the whole story in order to see how that faithfulness has shaped his life. And the same is true here. This is actually not the end of Moses' story. I mean, beyond the fact that we obviously believe that Moses' spirit was received by God, right? Uh, Beyond that, Moses... And beyond the fact that he's referenced frequently, Moses shows up one more time in the biblical narrative. In Luke 9, 28-31, you're welcome to turn there if you want. You don't have to. I'm, I'm going to read it just briefly. In Luke 9, 28-31, we see the Mount of Transfiguration. It says this, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, speaking about Jesus, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. There would be a prophet who would rise up like Moses. In fact, a prophet who would be greater than Moses, it would just take several centuries to get to him. And to drive that point home, so you're aware the word for departure there in Luke is actually exodus. He's he's trying to draw attention to the fact that what Jesus is going to do parallels what Moses did. Here, we see Moses one more time talking to God on a mountain about an exodus, about a deliverance, only now it's not going to be Moses doing the delivering. Now it's going to be Jesus, the God-man, delivering his people, preparing to enter Jerusalem, to go to a cross where he will pay the penalty for the sin of everyone who will repent and trust him, who will pay the penalty for our sin. And notably, for our purposes this morning, he will pay the penalty for Moses' sin, which is why right here, In the final place in Scripture where we see Moses enter the narrative, he's in the land. The mountain he's standing on with Jesus is in the land that God told him he couldn't lead his people into. The prophet he was waiting for was Jesus Christ, who through his work on the cross would release him from the penalty of his sin. And although God kept his promise that Moses did not get to lead his people into the promised land, Moses did get to lead a better Moses into it. He did get to follow, excuse me, he didn't get to lead, he got to follow a better Moses into it. He got to follow a better prophet into it. In the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the sin which had defined and destroyed Moses held him no longer. Because of Jesus, death and defeat 
did not get the last word of Moses' story. The grace of God did. Now I'm willing to bet that most of the Israelites had Joshua nailed down as the prophet they were waiting for. They almost certainly were sure that God's faithfulness uh, would, would be shown and that Joshua, Joshua would be the prophet they were hoping for. Moses might well have thought the same. And as later Israelites would read the end of Deuteronomy, you can imagine that they, like we so often do, wondered about God's faithfulness. For, for generations, Israelites, Hebrew people would read the end of Deuteronomy and wonder, okay, when's this guy coming? If it wasn't Joshua, then who? What about the prophet you promised, God? Why, why couldn't it have been Joshua? But the truth is that if Joshua had fulfilled that role, then the really grand, magnificent narrative we get of Moses being released from the penalty of his sin, of us being released from the penalty of our sin, the redemption God brought about for humanity would not have come to pass. If the people of Israel got what they most likely were expecting, what they probably were wanting, we all would have been poorer for it. Moses never would have been released from the penalty of his sin. His bones would have stayed outside the land. His death would have been the last time he spoke with God on a mountain. And the Israelites might have thought they got what they wanted, but they would have missed out on something infinitely better. It was only, though, at the end of the story, the actual end of the story, that all that came into focus. It's easy for us to wonder about God's faithfulness. But the simple fact is we don't have the perspective to know what he's doing. How often do we go through periods of despair only to look back and realize that God was remarkably faithful the whole time? It's easy when you lose your job, when the dream dies, when your kid is in the hospital. I was sharing with some of you this morning, the first year of my daughter's life, we were in the hospital like a lot. And a few times we were deeply concerned for her life. I know how that feels. It's easy when you get the bad prognosis to wonder about God's faithfulness. We're we're dealing with that right now in my own family. My father-in-law... A week and a half ago, uh, he had seen the doctor because he thought something was wrong with his gallbladder, and there was, but as they were running tests, they found uh, a mass in his colon that was almost causing a complete blockage. It was cancerous. That cancer was spread to his liver. It has spread to his kidneys, and it has spread to his lymph nodes. Two weeks ago, we did not know that that was happening. We found that out just in the last week and a half. And it's easy when you get that kind of news or when you're spending every night in a hospital room or when you're wondering where your next paycheck is going to come from to wonder, is God actually going to be faithful to me? Does God actually care? And I'm telling you, I'm I'm preaching this from a place of true and deep understanding. When when your loved one walks in rebellion, they leave the faith, you you wonder if God's forgotten you. Look, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to know why those things happen. I don't. That is way above my pay grade. I'm not even going to tell you that you're going to see all of them resolved before your death. Moses did not. I don't know all the sufferings in this room, and I don't know what temporal consequences you might be dealing with because of your sin. What I do know is that if you've been reconciled to God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then whatever those sufferings, whatever those temporal consequences are, They are not the period at the end of your story. They are a semicolon. God finishes that sentence. We read this morning, and I'm going to read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If Jesus would go to a cross to suffer the penalty for your sin, then what do you think he intends to withhold now that you need? Christian, and I say that intentionally, because if you are in here and you are not in Christ, if you have not trusted in Jesus, then these promises are not yet yours, but they can be, and I implore you to turn from your sin and trust him. Christian, God is not slow in keeping his promise. Might feel like it to us. But he's not. He has not forgotten you. He is now and always has been faithful. You might not see it yet, and you might not know how, but just like he did with Moses, he will carry you to the home where you will receive all that he has promised. Our closing prayer um, is adapted from a prayer originally written by a uh, Scottish minister and hymn writer, uh, George Matheson. If you would, please pray with me. Restore our souls, O God. There are green pastures around us to which our eyes are often blind. There are quiet waters beside us for which our ears often refuse to listen. The path on which you have placed us is already the path of your righteousness. Fix our eyes on you so that we might see it more clearly. Even the places we most dread do not take us outside of your loving care. It is enough for us, even if we must still pass through those dreadful places, to simply be aware of your presence with us. Grant us contentment to know that your goodness and mercy will follow us even when we don't think we can see them. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.